Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The first author featured in the 2012 LitFest reading series was Cheryl Strayed. At Lighthouse on June 6, 2012, Cheryl read from her New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, as well as from one of her Dear Sugar columns from The Rumpus. Welcome, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Thank you for coming to our location here at 1515 Ray Street. We're in day six of LitFest, and... I'm way tired. I don't know about some of you guys. Um, it's been pretty amazing. Um, a couple of things. If um, there's a tornado, we're cool. We're in the basement. It's all good. It's all good. Right? And we'll have beer. Well, it's going to be really great. Um, what's that? Plenty of wine. Are we out of beer? Yeah, no beer. Wine. Oh, okay. Tragic. Okay. Um, well, speaking of whirlwinds, um, our guest um, has had quite a week, wouldn't you say? You probably have heard. Um, she's been teaching here every day this week. Is that amazing? I mean, what, what an incredible... What an incredible gift to her, really. I mean, I think that's why... I mean, that's really an amazing... I mean, you can't top a week like that, really. Um, and then also she was, um, Cheryl was, her book Wild was, um, what was it? Oh, it was picked by Oprah. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I almost forgot, Oprah 2.0. And um, it's really neat because if you go to the Oprah 2.0 website, there's an interview, um, Oprah talking to Cheryl in Oprah's front yard. And it's a beautiful yard. And I'm not kidding you, you have to go check this out on the video. There are unicorns and jackalopes bounding around <laughs> in the background. It's, it's quite amazing. Oprah is, is quite a woman. So, um, all right, well, let, let me get serious. Wait, first, hold on. I know you're not here for me. You're here for Cheryl, so it's going to be quick. It's my distinct honor to introduce Cheryl um, Strayed. She's not only a writer of immense talent, but a writer of great heart, a heart filled with compassion and warmth for others. As many of you know, she's the author of a novel, Torch, and she's also the brains and soul of Dear Sugar from the Rumpus.net's Dear Sugar column. And these essays have been made into a collection, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar, which is going to be released in just a couple of weeks. I think it's probably going to sell okay, don't you think? <laughs> I love those columns. I mean, they, they just, they're just amazing. Her memoir, Wild, which I believe she's going to read from, right? Yes? Excellent. That's a good idea, I think. Yeah. Um, it's the story, if you haven't read it, it's the story of Cheryl's trek along the Pacific Crest Trail, some 100, I'm sorry, 1,100, 1,100 miles worth, and the emotional and physical burdens she carries and how those burdens lighten with every step she takes. To me, there's another kind of wild in this book, not just the hike. Um, and on somewhat level, we all know this truth. We are wild. In her trek, the young Cheryl is wild with need and fear, although one of her mantras on the trail is, I am not afraid, which I love. When I read the book, I realize that in order to be fully, a fully formed human, this character, this young person named Cheryl, has to become wild. She has to walk through the woods alone for hundreds of miles in order to rebuild the foundations of her life. She has to endure the endless pain of hiking in order to dull the emotional ache she feels in her heart. And I think um, that's really one of the reasons why I love this book. Um, I think we all read to learn something about ourselves and about others and about what it's like to be human. And for me, the reason why I love this book, not just the beauty of the sentences, the amazing stories that she tells, um, the drama, the humor, the sadness, the joy. Um, it's this one simple truth that I got from the book, which I had to write it down because I wanted to make sure I got it right. In order to prove to herself that she can survive the pain of losing her mother at such a young age, she must endure the pain of walking all those miles. Please welcome Cheryl Strait.
Hi, everyone. So I was, I was here in April. Is this mic okay? Does it seem tall? I was here in April doing, I did two three-hour workshops, one on Saturday and one on Sunday, and I was reading at Tattered Cover as well. How many, how many of you were in one of those workshops? Okay, so some of you. So I left here Sunday afternoon. I flew to Milwaukee because that was the next stop on my tour. And it was that next morning that I was in my hotel room and my cell phone rang and I answered it. And this woman said, this is Oprah. (laughs) And I said, it is. Because right off the bat, I knew it was. And and then we were silent for a minute and she said, We'll be back in a minute. Yeah, like she, uh, she did that thing that she does at the like when she goes off to commercial. But anyway, to to like verify that it was her, and um, it was so weird. And um, and I was like, well, what do you want? I mean, it's like, like why are you why are you calling me? And, and um, she said, you know, I really love your book, and we're gonna start this book club. And nobody knows. She didn't um, tell my publisher or my editor. She wanted to tell me first, which is so amazing. So then, the next Sunday, so the exact the Sunday a week after I was here, I was spending the day at Oprah's estate with her, um, <laughs> just hanging out like all day long. Um, but before I saw Oprah, they had this very fancy person do my makeup and hair. And so, like, if you see any of those Oprah, those like the videos and stuff with me and Oprah, like the whole time everyone else is thinking, oh my God, she's with Oprah in her yard. And I'm thinking, how do I get my hair to look like that again? <laughs> because my, I must say, my hair looks awesome. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So there is a secret to good hair, and it's a hair artist. So, um, I am going to read to you actually tonight from both of my books. Um, I have too many things up here at once. Hold on. Um, Or actually, I should say I'm going to read to you from Wild, and then I'm going to read a bit from uh, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is the Dear Sugar collection that will be out July 10th. This isn't the cover. This is just the galley, so it looks different than this. Um, How many of you in the room are writers? Okay, good, good, good. Because I'm going to read a certain little column about writing. But first, I'm going to read about Wild. I feel like the mic is too tall for me. Does it feel, does it feel too tall? Can it get lower just like a little? Or is it okay? Can you guys... I feel like I'm tiptoeing. Yeah. Do you want to lower Just a teeny bit. Lefty Lucy, right? Righty tiny. Yeah. There we go. That's better. Yeah. Because I'm going to be looking down at the right. page. Yeah, so... So I'm going to read to you from Wild, which is, as Michael said, my, my story of my 1,100-mile journey on the Pacific Crest Trail the summer of 1995 when I was 26 years old. I took the hike. Um, really, I decided to go on this hike at, a, at this moment of uh, really sort of desperation. I was at the bottom of my life. I, my mother had died very suddenly of cancer at the age of 45, and um, I had, in my grief, done all sorts of self-destructive things. Um, I was married at the time and couldn't sustain that marriage, and I was sexually promiscuous and using drugs and doing all sorts of things that I knew were not um, at all in line with the person I really was and the woman my mother raised me to be. And I found myself um, in line at an REI store outside of Minneapolis um, in December of, 2000, or of, of 1994, and I had never heard of the Pacific Crest Trail, but I saw this book as I was waiting in line. There had been a blizzard. I was waiting in line to buy a shovel, and which is such, I think, a metaphor. <laughs> but what's so sad, you know, I teach memoir, and I'm always like pounding into their heads, like you have to use the, you know, the, the metaphors that life gives you. You have to use them in your work, you know, and. Um, and you know, I wrote this book, and it, and it wasn't until I talked about it so much and would say I was standing in line waiting to buy a shovel that I realized that's a metaphor. I didn't use it in Wild. <laughs> so if I could rewrite the book, I'd work that image more. But anyway, I was buying the shovel, and um, I was waiting to pay for it, and I saw this guidebook. It said the Pacific Crest Trail Volume 1, California. And I picked it up, and I read the back, and it said that this, the PCT was this trail that went from Mexico to Canada through California, Oregon, and Washington, some 2,600 miles long. And, and I um, just, something really blossomed inside of me. I knew that it was this incredible thing, this big, magnificent, important, significant thing. And I was none of those things, and I needed to attach myself to it 
to try to, to try to become something like that again. Um, I had grown up in the wilderness of northern Minnesota without electricity or indoor plumbing or running water. And so the wilderness was a home to me. It was a home I'd lost after my mom died and my family fell apart. And I think now in retrospect, I didn't see it then, but in retrospect, I was you know, reaching for home by going into the wilderness. Um, and so I focused on that part of it, that kind of spiritual part of it. And I, went, I, I was working as a waitress at the time. Um, I, w- I went about the next few months working double shifts and saving my money and spending all my money every week at REI. I bought all the stuff they told me to buy. Um, and I loaded up all this stuff and got myself to this little town of Mojave, California, which is near where the trail crosses it in the Mojave Desert. And I, du- I, had, I dumped out all my things on the bed on the first day of my hike. And it was really only then that it, that it actually occurred to me that I had never gone backpacking before. <laughs> Um, so that was a little bit of a problem. Um, and I also had never packed my pack before, which is a bad idea. Um, and so I found myself there packing all this stuff and couldn't fit it all in, had to strap what it was left onto the outside, um, got that done and then realized I was going to be hiking into the desert and there was no water there. Um, so I had to carry all this water, like 24 and a half pounds of water, um, and then I was all ready to go, and I tried to lift my pack, <laughs> and it would not budge. Like, not at all. Like, not even a teeny, teeny, tiny bit, um, which was another problem. So I, I really feel like that is what Wild is about. Like, that is the paradox of my story, which was how am I going to bear this literal weight across this literal wilderness, um, and how am I going to bear, how am I going to, figure out how to bear the, the psychic and the emotional and spiritual and all those other weights that I was ca- trying to carry inside to. And so the journey was, the, the, the book is that journey, those two journeys. And so I'm going to read you a passage tonight. All kinds of things happen. Like the first eight days, I didn't see another human being at all. Not other hum- one other person. I did see a feral Texas longhorn bull. Um, that didn't go so well. Um, I did, <laughs> I did feel, uh, figure out I put the wrong kind of gas in my stove, and so I couldn't cook any of the food that I was carrying with me. Um, and a lot of other adventures ensued. And I learned a lot uh, the hard way. Um, my body, I was in a lot of pain. My, my boots never stopped hurting my feet. I lost a lot of toenails, and my pack chafed me because it was so heavy. Um, and all of these, these physical trials and, and psychic trials um, really taught me so much. And so the passage I'm going to read to you, um, one of the things I learned when I got out there is um, that winter had been a record snow year. And so the trail was buried, like 500 miles of the trail that I was to hike was buried under like 20 feet of snow. And so all of the PCT hikers that year had to do these bypasses and um, get off on these roads that were crossing the trail and hitchhike around them. So this passage I'm going to read to you tonight, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get away from the snow. And I have, um, I should tell you, I, na- I named my pack Monster. It got a name. <laughs> and it was a very apt name. And, um, and I really, uh, a lot of people, everyone asked me, like when I would meet civilians, they would always say, do you have a gun? Um, and I didn't have a gun, but I did have the world's loudest whistle. And I know it was the world's loudest because the packaging said so. <laughs> I think that's all you need to know for this passage. Can everyone hear me? Okay, good. So um, this takes like about 10 minutes to read, and then I'll read you some Dear Sugar. Okay. How do I do this logistically? Uh, (laughs) I was standing by the side of a road. I was standing by the side of the highway just outside the town of Chester, California, trying to hitch a ride when a man driving a silver Chrysler LeBaron pulled over and got out. He looked like a nice enough guy, a few years older than me. I'm having book problems here. Um, A few years older than me. He was a nice guy, I decided. You know, I'm going to try to adjust this. I'm sorry to be like, here we go. This. This works better, yes. Yeah, I think that it would help to actually, if I held the microphone, believe it or not. Then I can move freely. Okay. He looked like a nice enough guy, a few years older than me. He was a nice guy, I decided, when I glanced at the bumper of his car. On it, there was a green sticker that said, Imagine World Peas. Has there ever been a serial killer who imagined world peas? (laughs) 
Hey there, I called amiably. I was holding the world's loudest whistle, my hand having traveled to it unconsciously over the top of Monster and around the nylon cord that dangled from the backpack's frame. I hadn't used the whistle since I'd seen that first bear on the trail, but ever since, I'd had a constant and visceral awareness of where it was in relation to me, as if it weren't only attached to my backpack by a cord, but another invisible cord attached it to me. Good morning, the man said, and held his hand out to shake mine, his brown hair flopping over his eyes. He told me his name was Jimmy Carter, no relation, and that he couldn't give me a ride because there was no room in his car. I looked and saw it was true. Every inch except the driver's seat was crammed with newspapers, books, clothes, soda cans, and a jumble of other things that came up all the way to the windows. He wondered instead if he could talk to me. He said he was a reporter for a publication called the Hobo Times. He drove around the country interviewing folks who lived the hobo life. I'm not a hobo, I said. I'm a long-distance hiker. I let go of the whistle and extended my arm toward the road, jabbing my upright thumb at a passing van. I'm hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I explained. How long have you been out on the road, he asked, pulling a pen and a long, narrow reporter's notebook from the back pocket of his thin corduroy pants. His hair was shaggy and unwashed. His bangs concealed and revealed his dark eyes, depending on how the wind blew. He struck me as someone who had a Ph.D. in something airy and indescribable, the history of consciousness, perhaps, or comparative studies and discourse in society. No offense to anyone who has that degree. (laughs) I told you I'm not on the road, I said and laughed, eager as I was to get a ride. I couldn't help but feel a little delighted by Jimmy Carter's company. I'm hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I repeated, gesturing by way of elaboration to the woods that edged up near the road, though in fact the PCT was about nine miles west of where we stood. He stared at me blankly, uncomprehending. It was mid-morning and hot already, the kind of day that would be scorching by noon. I wondered if he could smell me. I was past the point where I could smell myself. I took a step back and dropped my hitchhiking arm in surrender. It's a national scenic trail, I offered, but he only continued looking at me with a patient expression on his face, his unmarked notebook in his hand. As I explained to him what the PCT was and what I was doing on it, I saw that Jimmy Carter wasn't bad looking. I wondered if he had any food in his car. (laughs) I was really hungry. So if you're hiking the wilderness trail, what are you doing here? I told him about bypassing the deep snow in Lassen Volcanic National Park. I added that I'd been on the trail a month. How many nights have you slept under, uh, with a roof over your head in that month, he asked. Three times, I answered after thinking about it. Is this all you have, he asked, nodding to my backpack and ski pole. Yeah, I mean, I have some things in storage too, but for now this is it. I put my hand on Monster. It felt like a friend always but even more so in the company of Jimmy Carter. Well then, I'd say you're a hobo, he said. (laughs) And asked me to spell my first and last names. I did and then wished I hadn't. No fucking way, he exclaimed when he had it all down on the page. Is that really your name? Yeah, I said, and turned away as if searching for a car so he wouldn't read the hesitation on my face. So, Jimmy Carter said, we could say that you're an actual stray. I wouldn't say that. Being a hobo and being a hiker are two different things, you know. I looped my wrist into the pink strap of my ski pole and scraped the dirt with the tip, making a line that went nowhere. I'm not a hiker in the way you might think of a hiker, I explained. I'm more like an expert hiker. (laughs) Oh, the arrogance of youth. I hike 20 miles a day, day after day, up and down mountains, far away from roads or people or anything often going days without seeing another person. Maybe you should do a story on that instead. He glanced up at me from his notebook, his hair blowing extravagantly across his pale face. He seemed like so many people I knew. I wondered if I seemed that way to him. I hardly ever meet hobo women, he half whispered. (laughs) So this is fucking cool. (laughs) I am not a hobo, I insisted more vehemently this time. Hobo women are hard to find, he persisted. (laughs) I told him that this was because women were too oppressed to be hobos. (laughs) That most likely all the women who wanted to be hobos were holed up in some house with a gaggle of children to raise. Children who'd been fathered by hobo men who'd hit the road. (laughs) I see, he said. You're a feminist then. (laughs) Yes, I said. It felt good to agree on something. 
but none of this matters, I exclaimed, because I myself am not a hobo. This is totally legit. You know what I'm doing? I'm not the only one hiking the PCT. People do this. Have you ever heard of the Appalachian Trail? It's like that, only out west. I stood watching him write what seemed like more words than I'd spoken. (laughs) I'd like to get a picture of you, Jimmy Carter said. He reached into his car and pulled out a camera. Smile, he said, and snapped a shot. He told me to look for his piece on me in the fall issue of the Hobo Times as if I were a regular reader. (laughs) Articles have been excerpted in Harper's, he added. Harper's? I asked, dumbfounded. Yeah, it's this magazine that I know what Harper's is. (laughs) And I don't want to be in Harper's, or rather, I really want to be in Harper's. But not because I'm a hobo. (laughs) I thought you weren't, he said, and turned to open the trunk of his car. Well, I'm not, so it'd be a really bad idea to be in Harper's because, which means you probably shouldn't even write the article because standard issue hobo care package, he said, turning to give me a can of cold Budweiser beer and a plastic grocery bag weighed down with a handful of items at its bottom. But I'm not a hobo, I echoed for the last time with less fervor than I had before, afraid he'd finally believe me and take the standard issue hobo care package away. <laughs> Thanks for the interview, he said, and shut the trunk. Stay safe out there. Yeah, you too, I said. You have a gun, I assume. At least I hope you do. I shrugged, unwilling to commit either way. Because I know you've been south of here, but now you're going north, which means you're soon entering Bigfoot country. (laughs) Bigfoot? Yeah, you know, Sasquatch. No lie. From here all the way up to the border and into Oregon, you're in the territory where most of the Bigfoot sightings in the world are reported. (laughs) He turned to the trees as if one might come barreling out at us. A lot of folks believe in them. A lot of hobo folks, folks who are out here, (laughs) folks who know. I hear Bigfoot stories all the time. Well, I'm okay, I think, at least so far. I laughed, though my stomach did a little somersault. And the weeks preceding my hike on the PCT when I decided not to be afraid of anything, I'd been thinking about bears and snakes and mountain lions and strange people I met along the way. I hadn't pondered hairy humanoid bipedal beasts. But you're probably fine. I wouldn't worry. Chances are they'll leave you alone, especially if you have a gun. Right, I nodded. Good luck on your hike, he said, getting into his car. Good luck, fi- good luck finding hobos, I said, and waved as he drove away. <laughs> I stood there for a while, letting cars pass without even getting, trying to get one to give me a ride. I felt more alone than anyone in the whole wide world. The sun beat down on me hot, even through my hat. I jabbed my thumb at a car, and realized after, only after it passed that it didn't look so good that I was holding a beer. <laughs> I pressed its cool aluminum against my hot forehead and suddenly had the urge to drink it. Why shouldn't I? It would only get warm in my pack. I hoisted Monster onto my back and ambled through the weeds, down into the ditch, and then up again into the woods, which somehow felt like home to me, like the world that was mine in a way that the world of roads and towns and people and cars was no longer. I walked until I found a good spot in the shade. Then I sat down in the dirt and cracked the beer open. I didn't like beer. In fact, that Budweiser was the first whole beer I'd ever drunk in my life. But it tasted good to me, like beer tastes, I imagine, to those who love it. Cold and sharp and crisp and right. While I drank it, I explored the contents of the plastic grocery bag. I took everything out and laid each item before me on the ground. A pack of peppermint gum. Three individually wrapped wet wipes. A paper packet containing two aspirin, six butterscotch candies and translucent gold wrappers, a book of matches that said, thank you, Steinbeck drug, a Slim Jim sausage sealed in its vacuum, plastic vacuum world, a single cigarette in a a cylindrical faux glass case, a a disposable razor, and a short fat can of baked beans. I ate the Slim Jim first, washing it down with the last of my bud, and then the butterscotch candies, all six of them one after the other, and then, still hungry, always hungry, turned my attention to the can of baked beans. I pried it open in tiny increments with the impossible can-opening device on my Swiss Army knife, and then, too lazy to rummage through my pack for my spoon, I scooped them out with the knife itself and ate them hobo-style from the blade. Thank you. So I read that um, I read that section 
at a reading in Boston, and and afterwards I opened it up to questions and answers, which I'll do after I read this sugar piece, and um, and you know usually you ask you know are there any questions and people are sort of shy at first, but in Boston an elderly gentleman in the front row immediately shot his hand up, and I said yes, and he said have you ever had sex with anyone for, in exchange for food. <laughs> Which I thought was either the best or worst question I've ever been asked. And I can't decide which. It's kind of both. Which I thought was really amazing. Yeah. But so I, I said the only, I gave him the only answer I could. I just, I asked him, I said, no, but would you like to go out to dinner? And he, he was a little taken aback by that. That'll teach him, right? Okay, I have to grab my other book. I don't think I can take the mic with me. I don't want to cause a disaster. Okay, so how many of you know about deer sugar? Okay, so some of you don't. Okay, so a couple, in, in March of 2010, actually right when I was, uh, had finished the first draft of Wild, and I sent it off to my editor, and I was in this, this downtime where I was waiting to receive my editor's notes. I was in this little moment that, that other writers who have published books, where you, you realize that what you've written is a, is a masterpiece, and, um, and, and then you're waiting, and then the editor will send you the letter, and then you realize you're a pile of shit. Um, <laughs> and uh, so in that line, well, um, I, yeah, my editor sent me a 14-page single-space letter in, resp- in response to the first draft of Wild. And she said good things in there, too, but she said, I mean, she also told me everything she thought I should revise. So that's, so I've been telling my students all week, like, it never stops. Like, you're always getting your work critiqued. So it's really, you know, it's just an ongoing process. But so in this little lull of time, I got this email from my friend Steve Almond, who I understand is going to come and teach here in September. Um, so he's this fabulous writer and a friend of mine. And he emailed me and said, I've been writing this Dear Sugar advice column for the Rumpus, and I'm not really into it. Um, and I think you would be good at it. Would you like to take it over? And I had didn't I didn't know that he was writing that column, but I was a fan of the column. And um, I had been reading it and really been annoyed because he would only do it like so intermittently that you it would just be like once every three months or something there would be a column. And so um, and that's why he wanted to hand it off. And so I said that I would take it over. And even though I don't know anything about giving anyone advice, um, and I have no qualifications to do so, and you know all of these reasons that. It would be a bad idea. And, um, oh, and the job pays nothing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there are all these reasons not to. And it's kind of like hiking the, my decision to hike the PCT. There was only one reason to do it, and it was because something inside of me said, do this. This is a good idea. And so I started doing it, and I started writing. You know, and what it, the setup is that people just email sugar questions anonymously. I don't see their email address when they send me. I just see the letter they sent. And um, then I would answer anonymously. And um, I started to, I realized that the one thing I had to offer was my, my skills as a storyteller. And that I also knew that so much of what had saved me in my life was stories, books I read, poems, stories, novels, plays, music, things that people had written that I found great solace in and great um, truth in. And so I tried to offer that through storytelling, through my sugar column, um, by way of also, and then I would also give people advice. Um, so it grew and grew and grew, and people started noticing, and now um, it's going to be a book, which is really exciting. So one of the first letters I wrote, um, one of the, fir- I mean, like about six months into my gig at Sugar, this young woman, she was the first person who identified herself by name. This is her real name. Um, everyone else is anonymous, and I was very uncomfortable with that. And I talked to her, and I emailed her, like, you know, are you sure you want to use your name? Because, um, you know, it's usually anonymous. And she, she said she wanted to. And she wrote me this letter, and this is my reply. The title of the column is Write Like a Motherfucker. <laughs> Dear Sugar, I write like a girl. I write about my lady life experiences. And that usually comes out as unfiltered emotion, unrequited love, and eventual discussion of my vagina as metaphor. (laughs) And that's when I can write, which doesn't happen to be true anymore. Right now, I'm a pathetic and confused young woman of 26, a writer who can't write. I'm up late asking you a question, really questioning myself. I've sat here at my desk for hours, mentally immobile. I look up people I used to love and wonder why they never loved me. I lie face down on my bed and feel scared. I get up, go to the computer, feel worse. 
David Foster Wallace called himself a failed writer at 28. Several months ago, while depression, when depression hooked its teeth into me, I complained to my then-boyfriend about how I'll never be as good as Wallace. He screamed at me, stop it. He killed himself, Alyssa. I hope to God you're never like him. I understand women like me are hurting and dealing with self-trivialization, contempt for other, more successful people, misplaced compassion, addiction, and depression, whether they're writers or not. Think of the canon of women writers. A unifying theme is that so many of their careers ended in suicide. I often explain to my mother that to be a writer slash a woman slash a woman writer means to suffer mercilessly and eventually collapse in a heap of I could have been better than this. She pleads with me, can't it be different? Can it? I want to jump out the window for what I've boiled down to is this one reason I can't write a book. But it's not that I want to die so much as have an entirely different life. I want to throw off everything I've accumulated and begin as someone new, someone better. I don't have a bad life. I didn't have a painful childhood. I know I'm not the first depressed writer. Depressed writer because the latter is less accurate, the former is more acute. I've been clinically diagnosed with major depressive disorder and have an on and off relationship with prescription medication. That said, I'm high functioning, a high functioning head case, one who jokes enough that most people don't know the truth, the truth that I'm sick with panic that I cannot and will not override my limitations, insecurities, jealousies, and ineptitude to write well with intelligence and heart and lengthiness. And I fear that even if I do manage to write, that the stories I write about my vagina, etc., will be disregarded and mocked. How do I reach the page when I can't lift my face off the bed? How does one go on, sugar, when you realize you might not have it in you? How does a woman get up and become the writer she wishes to be? Sincerely, Elizabeth Sist. How does that happen? Dear Elizabeth Sist, When I was 28, I had a chalkboard in my living room. It was one of those two-sided wooden A-frames that stand on their own and fold flat. On one side of the chalkboard, I wrote, the first product of self-knowledge is humility, Flannery O'Connor. And on the other side, I wrote, she sat and thought of only one thing, of her mother holding and holding on to their hands, Eudora Welty. The quote by Eudora Welty is from her novel, The Optimist's Daughter, which won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1972. It was a book I read again and again, and that line about the woman who sat thinking of only one thing was at the heart of the reason why I sat like that too. Thinking of only one thing. One thing that was actually two things pressed together, like the back-to-back quotes on my chalkboard. How much I missed my mother and how the only way I could bear to live without her was to write a book, my book, the one that I'd known was in me since way before I knew people like me could have books inside of them, the one I felt pulsing in my chest like a second heart, formless and unimaginable, until my mother died. And there it was, the plot revealed, the story I couldn't live without telling. That I hadn't written the book by the time I was 28 was a sad shock to me. Of myself, I'd expected greater things. I was a bit like you then, Elizabeth Sist, without a book but not entirely without a claim. I'd won a few grants and awards, published a couple stories and essays. These minor successes stoked the grandiose ideas I had about what I would achieve and by what age I would achieve it. I read voraciously. I practically memorized the work of writers I loved. I recorded my life copiously and artfully in my journals. I wrote stories in feverish, intermittent bursts, believing they'd miraculously form a novel without my having to suffer too much over it. But I was wrong. The second heart inside me beat ever stronger, but nothing miraculously became a book. As my 30th birthday approached, I realized that if I truly wanted to write the story I had to tell... I would have to gather everything within me to make it happen. I would have to sit and think of only one thing longer and harder than I thought possible. I would have to suffer, by which I mean work. (laughs) At the time, does anyone relate to any of this? At the time, I believed that I'd wasted my 20s by not having come out out of them with a finished book, and I bitterly lambasted myself for that. I thought a lot of the same things about myself that you do. That I was lazy and lame. That even though I had a story in me, I didn't have it in me to see it to fruition. To actually get it out of my body and onto the page. To write, as you say, with intelligence and heart and lengthiness. 
But I'd finally reached a point where the prospect of not writing a book was more awful than the one of writing a book that sucked. And so at last I got serious, got to serious work. When I was done writing my book, I understood that things happened just as they were meant to. That I couldn't have written my book before I did. I simply was not capable of doing so, either as a writer or a person. To get to the point I had to get to write my first book, I had to do everything I did in my 20s. I had to write a lot of sentences that never turned into anything, and stories that never miraculously formed a novel. I had to read voraciously and compose exhaustive entries in my journals. I had to waste time and grieve my mother and come to terms with my childhood and have stupid and sweet and scandalous sexual relationships and grow up. In short, I had to gain the self-knowledge that Flannery O'Connor mentions in that quote I wrote on my chalkboard. And once I got there, I had to make a hard stop at self-knowledge's first product, humility. Do you know what that is, sweet pea? To be humble? The word comes from the Latin word, words humilis and humus, to be down low, to be of the earth, to be on the ground. That's where I went when I wrote the last word of my first book, straight onto the cool tile floor to weep. I sobbed and I laughed through my tears. I didn't get up for a half an hour. I was too happy and grateful to stand. I'd turned 35 a few weeks before. I was two months pregnant with my first child. I didn't know if people would think my book was good or bad or, hor or horrible or beautiful, and I didn't care. I only knew that I no longer had two beating hearts in my chest. I'd pulled one out with my own bare hands. I'd suffered. I'd given it everything I had. I'd finally been able to give it because I'd let go of all the grandiose ideas I'd once had about myself in my writing. So talented. So young. I'd stopped being... <laughs> Have you all thought that about yourself at one point or another? <laughs> so talented. So young. Now I'm just like, so old. So mediocre. <laughs> I'd stopped being grandiose. I'd lowered myself to the notion that the absolute only thing that mattered was getting that extra beating heart out of my chest, which meant I had to write my book, my very possibly mediocre book, my very possibly never going to be published book, my absolutely, my absolutely nowhere in the league with the writers I admired so much that I practically memorized their sentences book. It was only then, when I'd humbly surrendered, that I was able to do the work I needed to do. I hope you'll think hard about that. If you had a two-sided chalkboard in your living room, I'd write humility on one side and surrender on the other. That's what I think you need to find and do to get yourself out of this funk you're in. The most fascinating thing to me about your letter is that buried beneath all the anxiety and sorrow and fear and self-loathing, there's arrogance at its core. It presumes you should be successful at 26, when really it takes most writers so much longer to get there. It laments that you'll never be as good as David Foster Wallace, a genius, a master of the craft, while at the same time describing how little you write. You loathe yourself, and yet you're consumed by the ideas you have about your own importance. You're up too high, and you're down too low. Neither, place is, neither is the place where we get any work done. We get the work done on the ground level, and the kindest thing I can do for you is to tell you to get your ass on the floor. I know it's hard to write, but it's harder not to. The only way you'll find out if you have it in you to get, is to get to work and see if you do. The only way to override your limitations, insecurities, jealousies, and ineptitude is to produce. You have limitations. You are in some ways inept. This is true of every writer, and it's especially true of writers who are 26. <laughs> you will feel insecure and jealous. How much power you give those feelings is entirely up to you. That you struggle with major depressive disorder certainly adds a layer to your difficulties. I've not focused on it in my answer because I believe, and it seems you believe, that it's only a layer. It goes without saying your life is more important than your writing, and that you should consult your doctor about how your depression may contribute to the despair you're feeling about your work. But, uh, but I can tell you that you're not alone in your insecurities and fears. They're typical of writers, even those who don't have depression. Artists of all sorts reading this will understand your struggles, including me. Another layer of your anxiety seems rooted in your concern that as a woman you're writing, which features unfiltered emotion, unrequited love, and a discussion of your vagina as metaphor, will be taken less seriously than that of men. Yes, it probably will. Our culture has made significant progress when it comes to these things, but we're not all the way there. 
It's still true that literary works by women, gays, writers of color are often framed as specific rather than universal, small rather than big, personal or particular rather than socially significant. There are things you can do to shed light on and challenge those biases. But the best possible thing you can do is get your ass down on the floor, write so blazingly good that you can't be framed. Nobody's going to ask you to write about your vagina, hun. Nobody's going to give you a thing. You have to give it yourself. You have to tell us what you have to say. That's what women writers throughout time have done. And it's what we'll continue to do. It's not true that to be a woman writer means to suffer mercilessly and eventually collapse in a heap of I could have been better than this. Nor is it true that a unifying theme is that so many of their careers ended in suicide. And I strongly encourage you to let go of these beliefs. They're inaccurate and melodramatic, and they do not serve you. People of all professions suffer and kill themselves. In spite of various mythologies regarding artists and how psychologically fragile we are, the fact is occupation is not a top predictor for suicide. Yes, we can rattle off a list of women writers who've killed themselves, and yes, we may conjecture that their status as women in the societies in which they lived contributed to the depressive and desperate state that caused them to do so, but it isn't the unifying theme. You know what is? How many women wrote beautiful novels and stories and poems and essays and plays and scripts and songs in spite of all the crap they endured? How many of them didn't collapse in a heap of I could have been better than this and instead went right ahead and became better than anyone would have predicted or allowed them to be? The unifying theme is resilience and faith. The unifying theme is being a warrior and a motherfucker. It is not fragility. It's strength. It's nerve. And if your nerve deny you, Emily Dickinson wrote, go above your nerve. Writing is hard for every last one of us, straight white men included. Coal mining is harder. Do you think miners stand around all day talking about how hard it is to mine for coal? <laughs> they do not. They simply dig. You need to do the same, dear, sweet, arrogant, beautiful, crazy, talented, tortured, rising star glow bug. That you're so bound up about writing tells me that writing is what you're here to do. And when people are here to do that, they almost always tell us something we need to hear. I want to know what you have inside of you. I want to see the contours of your second beating heart. So write, Elizabeth Sist. Not like a girl. Not like a boy. Write like a motherfucker. Sugar. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, thank you. So I'd love to take questions. If anyone has any questions, and no, I've never had sex in exchange for food. <laughs> so that's out of the way. What else do we got? Mark. Um, I think you posted on Facebook that Elizabeth Sest published something in the New York Times recently. Um, she published, uh, she, yeah, she had a modern, I think a modern love piece, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's a graduate student, she's just finishing up her graduate, uh, I think she's in her last year uh, in an MFA pro- program in New York, so yeah. Yeah. Proof that your advice That's right, that's right. <laughs> yes. Have you ever cooked a meal in exchange for sex? <laughs> well, I have done that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there we go. Hey, I loved your advice letter just now. Uh, I was making a list of novels I want to read over the summer, and my girlfriend is fantastic, pointed out, well, half of them should be by women, and of course they should. That's right. And so, And I realized, you know, I, well, I, I wondered if you could go a little further than your advice column and not only name a couple of books by women that have really knocked you out. Mm-hmm. But also, how does a woman who's a writer, once she's got, been able to produce material, negotiate? Do you have any advice for her from experience? Yeah. Publishing a world in a critical world that's ready to marginalize her work and then wants to put flowers and birds on the cover. Yeah, I have a lot of... Uh, so did everyone hear that question? So first, I mean, uh, books by women... I mean, I, anything written by Alice Monroe is just, you know, my... I mean, she's amazing. Have you read Alice Monroe? Yes, love her. Mary Gateskill. I love Edna O'Brien. Um, 
she's she's an underrecognized. I mean, she's she's in this weird place where she's like really well known. She's on, won all these big awards, and, and and yet it seems like a lot of people in my sort of writer generation haven't really read her. The Country Girls trilogy are her first three novels. They're these novellas that were published in the early '60s, and they, they were banned in Ireland. She's from Ireland for years, and she's amazing. I love her. Um, there's so many writers. Um, Julie Oranger, if I'm saying her name right. Gosh, is that enough? Okay, so to the de- to the gender question. So this has been a big thing, um, you know, especially any woman writing a memoir. You you really have to, you know, it's like everyone wants to say your story is a woman's story, you know, and um, they don't really say that so much about men, right? I mean, the, the, we've always read like the male experience as the universal experience and the female experience as the specific. And so, you know, as a woman, I had to really um, be very conscious of that when Wild was in the pipeline, um, because I what I really felt was like that this was a book that wasn't just for women, that I wanted everyone to read it and um, take it seriously. And, and it started with um, just like the cover. Um, making the cover gender neutral, making the cover one that like guys will carry around and not be embarrassed about it. And, um, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And, um, and you know, a lot of times they want to do, they want to look soft or or kind of girly or, you know, and, and no man will buy, you know, certain covers. It's like no man is going to buy that book. And what's been interesting is all along the way too, when the, whenever the press, like when the copy was rewritten, promotional copy, I was always very conscious about, you know, this saying, you know, just using language, like um, that it's about uh, experience. It's about the human experience, not the female experience. You know? And of course, it's about the female experience, too. You know, I don't mean to say that women won't have a specific way that they identify with the book. But what the, one of the most important things that's been amazing is like Wild has um, managed to get into the hands of men. Like, men read wild. I get tons of fan mail from men. And it's because, I think, partially because that marketing, like, we, they marketed to all people instead of just women. And so that's, but I had, it had to be a conscious thing, you know, and so you have to be kind of vigilant, I think, about it. But the way your work is talked about. Um, and it, I, the one experience I've had over and over again is uh, radio interviewers. Um, male radio interviewers will say to me, oh, my God, I, I loved your book so much. And then um, I'll be like, thank you. And, and we'll talk all about it. And then we'll go live. And they'll go, now, this is a great book for women. And I'll be like, no, you said you loved it you know, before we went on the air. you know." And it's just like, but it's like because we don't even know how to talk about women's books without making it for women. You know, so what else? Yes. There's something about the physicality of the hike. Yeah, I think so. The question is about the physical. You know, so much of this stuff. It's it's interesting. It's like I just I you know I experienced this, and then came to really understand it later. You know, and I I think you're right. I think that the physical trial was really important, and I and I and I've really come to think in a lot of ways about how how bereft our culture is of you know, sort of having youth kind of challenge themselves physically. I mean, you know, I mean, even on minor levels now, it's like, you know, you don't even walk down the street. You know, it's like everything is sort of done for us. And, um, and I think that a huge part, you know, I was so in my emotions. I've never been somebody who was like emotionally repressed or had issues with like not communicating my feelings. But it was almost the opposite. Like I was, I was so lost in my feelings. And I, in the body, the, the, the body experience, the physical, you know, it took me out of my, my heart and, and into and, and head and into my body. And so when your concern is like covering those miles or getting that water, um, there was something so restorative to me that it allowed me to just sort of stand back and get some perspective. Um, and also just to, you know, there's something about doing something hard physically and, and doing it. And you feel like, I mean, that's why people like run marathons when they're turning 50 or do a triathlon after they've gone through chemo, right? Because it's like, this something big is happening in my life, and I want to mark it, and I'm going to I'm going to test myself physically. So that's what I was doing. I think yes. Um, along the same lines, this is another writing question, but you talk in the book about these patches on your hips that were like chicken skin, yeah. and how your feet were destroyed and your toenails fall off. And I was wondering if you know, 20 years later, did your body is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've posted naked pictures on my website. No, I'm teasing. Um, 
you know, it's, I guess that's the number one question I get is, are my feet okay now? My feet recovered. It took them a few years. It took a few years to those, for those toenails to grow back. And, um, the, the patches, I mean, it was a gnarly scene there for a while. And, um, you know, but the skin, the body rejuvenates. It's, it's perfect again. Um, <laughs> thanks to Spanx. Um, but, um, it's, uh, uh, Spanx, I don't mean somebody spanking me. It's a, a supportive, supportive underwear <laughs> for the guys in the room. Yeah. <laughs> the women know what Spanx is, right? <laughs> I'm teasing, really. I'm not wearing Spanx right now. Yes. <laughs> um, so you finished the book in 1995. Did you say that? No, I finished the hike in, in 95. Yeah, thank God it didn't take this long to get published. But, uh, right, yeah, I wrote it in like 2008 and 9 and 10. Um, I... Uh, so a combination of things. I did keep a, a journal. I was an avid journaler in my 20s. I, I wasn't keeping the journals to write the book, but when I wrote the book, I had the journal. And so like a great example of that is the, the Hobo Care Package, like the way I list all the um, items there. You know, that's right from my journal. Now, if I didn't have my journal, I would have remembered most of those items. You know, I might not have remembered exactly how many butterscotch candies, but I would have remembered there were some. You know, so, I mean, what's interesting is, so the book is a combination of my journals, my memory, um, sometimes things I could, you know, research and, and verify. Um, sometimes I would get in touch with people I met on the trail. But, and what was interesting about that is memory gets such a bad rap, but so often, you know, when I would email people and say, what do you remember? Like, they would actually remember, you know, what I remembered. And, um... And then there are some cases, like since the book has been published, because some people I couldn't find them, but now like everyone who's ever met me um, has found me. <laughs> I was telling uh, uh, Mike that, that um, a couple of days ago I got this email um, from this guy in Minneapolis, and he's like, you know, I wrote this review of your book, and he posted a thing, and he's like, you may not remember, but we went on a date, and we made out. <laughs> and, and I'm like, are you allowed to review my book if you kissed me? Like, I, I, like, even if it was like in 1992 or something, like, it just seems a little odd. But anyway, I didn't, so this is, everyone came out of the woodwork. And so a lot of the people who are in the book who you know, like I would look up and they would be at a reading or something, which is so great. And um, what was great about that is sometimes they would remember like more things than I did. Like, like um, just just last night um, or a couple days ago, was it last night or the night before, I got this email from a guy named Scuddy. And um, he said, I took the photograph that's on your cover. And it's, this is a st- what's called a stock photo. So the book designer just pulled this image from like the photographer so he doesn't get a credit it doesn't you know it's just that it's a stock photo so he said I took the the photo of the boot and uh, they're my boots and I wore them hiking and I wore them many times in on these trails in New Mexico uh, when I was in my 20s and he described it was so cool because he did in those boots like what I did and um so there's there's that that object and so I posted that on Facebook that little anecdote and then the guy who's Greg in the book um, saw that I posted that, and he messaged me and said, "Well, you know, by the way, I have your um, foldable saw." And I, like, and there's a scene. Remember the scene when I lighten my pack and I put all that stuff in the box, and I don't know who took what, but he's like, "I have your saw," and um, and so um, I, he goes, "And I can give it back to you if you have sentimental value." And I was like, "Well, it's like weird. It's like now my saw is kind of famous, and so like, you know." Like, I don't know, like, he could auction it off on eBay or something, or I could, I don't know. But, um, so, things like that. Like, I don't remember that he got my saw, but he did, you know, so. But one thing that's been good is no, like, nobody in the book, because that's everyone's biggest fear when they write a memoir is all the people who will say mean things to them about what you said about them in the book. And um, nobody, I mean, every, everyone has been really wonderful. Um, everyone, so far. <laughs> Yes. I really appreciate everything you said about perspective and needing to write this story at the time when you were ready to tell it. And I was just wondering, because you actually wrote it after it happened and you reconstructed it, were there parts that brought you back? Were there parts of the story that were especially hard for you to write? And if so, what were they? And how did you, as a writer, 
Yeah, so going back in time and reliving moments, um, was that hard? You know, absolutely. I mean, the hardest things I've... I mean, I read this, like, funny passage. One of the things about Wilde that was interesting to me as a writer is that in the book, I was able to really write every emotion. You know, the hardest, saddest, most brutal scenes that I've ever written are in this book, and the lightest, funniest scenes are also in this book, and everything in between. And so, yeah, that was really hard to go back. You know, when you write, you know, you have to create, you have to so inhabit that world you're creating that, you know, you really do feel the emotion of the experience. And um, I felt incredibly nostalgic for the trail. I just longed to be back there because it was so wonderful. And, and all my old PCT friends who've read it said, oh, my God, you know, they missed it so much. It, the book made them miss it. Um, but then the hard scenes, yeah, I mean, I just cried, and, you know, I, I felt... Um, all of those emotions again, you know, but I do think that that's the, the work of being a writer. And so I'm willing to go there, but it is a place you go, you know, for sure. It's, I mean, you're, you're examining your life. That's the thing too, is I learned a lot about the hike by writing the book about the hike, you know? So I got to live it. Um, who is it that, who's the, is it Grace Paley who said you taste life twice as a writer? You get to live it and then, you know, relive it. Maybe, are we running short on time? Maybe, maybe one more or two more questions? Are we okay? Just cut us off when it's time. Who else? Yes. Uh, considering where you are today as a writer, how much was your MSA and how much was GIF worked? And then how much was other experience? Okay, so... Uh, where I am as a writer, how much was my MFA? How much was, you know, I, I, I think my MFA was just part of the the path, you know, like it was important. Um, I learned a lot from, from my peers and my teachers. And, but most importantly, it gave me three years to just focus on my work and be a writer. I didn't have to also be a waitress. It was the first time ever that I wasn't having to balance other work with my writing. And so I was able to just completely give myself over to writing Torch. And um, so it was important, but it wasn't as if I entered my MFA program not not being a writer, and then I left a writer. I entered the program being a writer and being very solid in my sense of myself in that way, but I was a writer who hadn't yet finished a book. And so I feel like the whole thing, you know, it's just all part of one piece, and, and that it was, you know, years of... You know, I've been a serious writer since I was like 19. And so it's just years of writing and writing and writing and writing and the different things I did along the way. Sometimes writing alone, sometimes writing with the help of a writer's group, sometimes in an MFA program. All of those things contributed. When I will say, you know, for those of you who are in workshops and stuff, um, and I think anyone in here with an MFA, I'm going to guess, will concur. There was a point, like, as soon as I got out of my MFA program, I, you know, I did not want anyone to, I didn't want to hear what anyone thought about my work, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it was so helpful, but it also, after a while, it's bewildering. Because you, you start to see other people's footprints all over your pages, and you need to get to the place where you learn how to trust yourself and your own instincts and your own vision. And so I wrote, like, the first half of Torch in, you know, bringing it in every week at Syracuse University. And, my, and, and then the second half, I went away in that year after graduate school and just wrote and um, didn't show one page to, to anyone. And that was my novel, you know. And it wasn't like the second half was worse than the first half. It was like what I learned in the second half helped me. And I couldn't have, I, I would have just killed someone if I had, they'd been talking to me about it the whole time. Um, because I just feel like it's too, it was too much interference. And, um, and now what's great, I do have a writer's group, but you know, I bring them little bits and pieces, little problem areas. And then now you know, it's my editor who really, you know, it's one person, which is a lot less confusing than like eight people telling you what they think. Did you have a question? We're all living vicariously through your success. <laughs> I'm living vicariously through my, my success. I don't even know what the hell's going on. Are you enjoying this ride? Am I enjoying this ride? Um, do you want the real answer or the, uh, the answer? Um, it's complicated, I have to say. Um, I'm really grateful. I'm really, really, really grateful. And that's the main thing I feel. And, you know, it also is weird. It's like I've been in this cozy little lit world. Um, and now I'm in this other big other world. And so just, I feel more exposed. I feel overexposed, you know? And um, so it's, it, that's, it's just a taking some, getting used to. It just happened really fast, you know? And um, so it's exciting, and it's everything I ever hoped for, dreamed, I mean, it's beyond what I ever even actually thought about. But, um, I mean, the thing that's really important to me is that, um, that I always return to is that this book 
this book wild would be the exact same book if, if only like three people had read it. You know, there's nothing that's changed about the book. And, um, you know, now it's like this happened and that happened and Oprah likes it, but those people don't change the book. They change the, the public experience of the book and the book's place in the world. And the fact that maybe someday I will have a pool boy, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I wrote this book. <laughs> Are there even pool boys? Like, I, 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 like, I don't even know. Does that even exist? Or is that just some sort of... Yeah, but I live in Portland. I can't even have a, a pool, really. But anyway, something like that. You know, somebody who brings me drinks. Can I have that? Um, somebody needs to bring me a drink. My wine's back there at that table. Um, but I... I uh, so I, I always try to remember that. You know, that that book, if you guys have a book in your drawer, you know, it's, 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 it's family member is this book, you know. And um, that, like, our... our Ooh, sorry. Our, our kindredness is that we wrote those books. And like all that stuff that happens to the book is not really about us. It isn't. You know, and um, you know, it, it's totally just what happened to the book. It's not what happened. It's not what I did to the book. Does that make sense? But anyway, thank you, Oprah, if you're listening. I love you. <laughs> so, so I had to... I had to keep the Oprah thing a total secret. The only person I could tell was my husband, and so until it was announced, and so it got to the point. And every like my editor and my agent, they were like, "Don't every day, like, don't say anything to anyone about Oprah." And um, so it got to the point that every time I even thought the word Oprah, I thought a sniper was going to shoot me in the head. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's true. Okay, more questions. Yes. Um, <laughs> you feel that you'll be able to do as a writer that you weren't able to do um, previously? Um, or is it more anxiety producing that you're like more under the public eye as far as your next book after the one that's already coming out? I think both things. You know, I think, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we all know how success works, right? It's great, and then it's also like, you know, that then you feel like, how can I... I mean, that's, that's when, I, when I say, like, the stuff that happened in the book is outside the... Like, um, you know, my next book could just be a book that's every bit is, you know, that I think it's every bit is sort of good or whatever, but it just doesn't have, like, what it's about is just not that interesting to a whole bunch of people. You know what I mean? It could be, like, a thousand people find... My, the subject of my next book interesting <laughs> and then I'm like a failure but see but I don't see it as that like if I, I need to write the next book whatever it is that I want to write like I, I've always been driven by my own interest and desire and so I think the minute you start to think well what are people gonna now that they loved wild how can I make them keep loving me you know I have to not have that in my head and I think that it's going to be a little bit of a struggle but I would say that the, the probably the good thing I'm guessing because I'm still in the midst of it I don't know but I'm thinking that maybe this Success will mean that I'll get to write my next book while the pool boy brings me drinks. <laughs> no, but what I mean by that is I don't have to like, go out and hustle for a job or something. I can actually take a year and work or something. You know? Do you have an idea what your next project might be? No, I've started a couple things, but I've now been in such a tornado of self-promotion that, um, that like, I've just been promoting Wild for the last few months um, that I haven't really had time to write anything but like the Dear Sugar column and Q and A's for endless blogs, you know, things like that. And the ethicist. I got to be the ethicist. It's the New York Times. That was fun. Yeah. Okay, maybe one more question. I know you all want to go home. Yes. Well, just the world, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, even the world has changed. I mean, even if Wilde hadn't been an Oprah pick, what, just Torch was published, came out in hardback in 2006, Wilde 2012, so they're six years apart. And the, the book world has changed so much. Um, it's gone, I mean, there's so much more online stuff. Like, I don't know that I did one Q&A for one website 
when Torch came out. I did a ton of radio and newspaper, and maybe I did something for some website, but not really. There weren't really the kind of, uh, like, now there's, like, everyone has a website um, about books and writers and, you know, and everyone. And so you do just tons and tons of Q&As and interviews and stuff for all these websites. So that's really different. And there is a way that, like, you're in Twitter, like, in Facebook. I wasn't on Twitter or Facebook um, when Torch came out. You know, I didn't, I emailed, but I didn't have any, there was no social media. I mean, I think it was there, but people like me weren't part of it. Um, and now you have to be part of it. You know, it's like part of the, the thing. And, um, and it's a lot of work. I spent a lot of time online, you know, and it's also fun. I get to have, I mean, sugar was totally born online and lived online and, you know, sugar exists in that orbit. If you don't know that orbit, you know, you don't know who sugar is, but if you are in that orbit, you know, it's like, it's, it's an interesting kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question. You guys, does somebody else just desperately need to ask a question or are we done? Is there a desperate question? So why are you pointing to? Michael's going to come. Okay. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.